Good morning again to everyone. Hello, everyone online, too. Very nice to see you. Can you hear me? Yes. It has been a morning of many surprises. I'm uh, very happy to be sitting here with some sense of certainty for 45 minutes. And to start by acknowledging uh, that we are located here in Marin County, unceded traditional ancestral and contemporary homelands of the Coast Miwok, the Pomo, the Wapo people. Uh, we're located here in Marin County on the unceded traditional ancestral and contemporary homelands of the Coast Miwok, the Pomo, and the Wapo peoples. And that includes the Southern Pomo and the Great and Rancheria tribes. As I often say, I try to rewrite this land acknowledgement each time so that it's fresh. But what I try to say also each time is that we recognize the history here of indigenous peoples as well as the present day, the harm of being removed, displaced, and forced away from their lands, from their language and their cultural lifeways. We commit to moving forward from a place of honesty and respect, offering gratitude to present day tribes to honor their stories and songs their ways of being in relationship with all beings, and the power of their ancestral healing spirit. Could you hear me? Was that, was that better? It sounds a little echoey, but way back there, I think you might have to figure out a way to come sit up in the front on the floor if you can't hear me back there. It's okay to come up a little closer if you need to. It's fine, yeah. We'd rather you hear the talk. So I'd like to start this morning uh, by uh, sharing with you uh, a five-minute news story that I heard recently and that I have played, as I will say, several times since I first heard it. Greg, would you please play it and just Close your eyes if you feel like you can listen better that way. We want to take some time to remember the biologist who made the world fall in love with this sound. Roger Payne introduced us to the Symphony of the Sea back in 1970 with the groundbreaking album Songs of the Humpback Whale. It became the most popular nature recording in history. It also helped energise a movement to protect marine mammals. Roger Payne died in his Vermont home over the weekend. And we want to remember him in his own words, so here he is, reflecting on the monumental album and his love for humpback whales. The first time I saw a whale up close, I was working at Tufts University and I heard an announcement that a whale had washed ashore on Revere Beach and I decided I wanted to see it. By the time I got there, 
Somebody had cut its flukes off and they were missing. Somebody else had carved their initials in the side of it and somebody else had stuffed a cigar butt in the blowhole. And I just, I stood looking at this animal. It was perfectly clear to me that nature was under the most appalling assaults and most people didn't seem to know anything about it. And I thought, what could I do? And I thought, whales, that's what I could do. There was this fellow in Bermuda named Frank Watlington who worked for the Navy doing something secret. And uh, he had heard sounds that he thought were whales, and they were quite elaborate. And so I went with my former wife, Katie Payne, and we got a ride. As we boarded the boat, Frank took us through the engine room and took out of his pocket a tape, a magnetic tape, and walked over to a tape recorder that was in the corner of the room. But there was a generator in the room roaring. I mean, you had to almost shout to be able to be heard above it. And he threaded the tape across the heads of the recorder, and he hit the on switch, and he put some headphones on his head and adjusted the gains. And then leaning forward and putting the headphones on my head, he said, I think these are humpback whales, and shouting to be heard over the roar of this thing. And what I heard completely blew my mind. I had never heard anything in nature that was remotely as extraordinary a performance. And it instantly seemed just dead obvious that here, finally, was something that could get enough of the attention of the world and make it possible to get people concerned about whales. People knew at the time that a whale was a big blubbery animal, and that's about it. At the time, we were killing 33,000 large whales, baleen whales, each year. But it was dead obvious that whales were on the brink of extinction. I decided that I wanted to make a record almost at once. What I decided is the world has to hear this. I mean, that's going to make a difference, a huge difference. That record took off, and it became the most successful recording of, of uh, natural history sounds ever. A lot of people weep when they hear these sounds. It hits them emotionally. And I've never wept when hearing them, but I've come damn close. And um, I thought to myself, this is how I'm going to spend my life. We're trying to translate whales speak. Do I think it's going to be the same sort of full, rich language that humans have? No, I certainly don't. But I think it will have some very complex and interesting things. I would love to ask them simple things. But I would say, you know, sing. Or again... Sorry would be a good word to say. And once
once a whale speaks to humanity, no matter how simple its message, it has a chance, I think, to get the attention of the world in a way that it just desperately needs to have. And once that happens, I think all sorts of change will occur. And once change begins to happen, I've noticed it happens so fast that all you can do is just watch. Once that begins, then I am filled with hope. Roger Payne is the biologist behind Songs of the Humpback Whale. He died last weekend at the age of 88. This piece was produced by WBUR's Barbara Moran. Thank you. Thank you. Greg and John went to quite a bit of trouble to be able to play that for us today. Thank you. I wanted to hear the sound of the whales here in the Green Gulch Zendo. I played the story, as I say, a few times since, and each time I hear the sounds of their voices as a calling, a kind of reaching out between species, uh, ancient ancestors sending messages from the spirit world. I feel intimacy, tender with whales. I've seen a few here on the beach, Muir Beach, in the same kind of way that Roger Payne described. Battered by ship propellers and then desecrated. I feel curious about their huge intelligence and their sensitivity about their experience of life their experience of love and loss. They're caring for each other in pods, swimming with their babies, constantly searching for krill and other foods to feed on, sending each other songs through waters deep and mysterious and endlessly beautiful. I wonder what stories or wisdoms, secrets, or warnings, if any, are they trying to tell? We are all pretty fluent these days in stories of our current time which are marked by catastrophe and dysfunction. But these kinds of stories do not tell the whole story of us or of this time. There's also quite an ordinary and abundant unfolding of dignity and care and generosity, of social creativity and evolution, of breakthroughs, breakthroughs, generative stories about how all kinds of people, communities, working with forms that are broken, with a world in pain, working in institutions that don't make sense anymore, and finding ways to be of service to care for the people and the places and the beings they love, to be healers in many forms, and to model, to model and advance quietly, but so powerfully, what it looks like when we rise to our best humanity. 
we too are so capable of such huge intelligence and sensitivity, creativity, community building, caring, love. But what can we do? I hear this song and the story of Roger Payne's awakening, and I feel hope and gratitude for what he did. Thank you. Thank you, Roger Payne, for your listening to the cries of the world, for taking awakened action. Thank you for your follow-through, your steadfastness, your gratitude for a life of caring. And I feel gratitude here today for our life, our Sangha life, our extended Maha Sangha life, here in the room and also online on Zoom, sharing a wholehearted practice, the beauty and the joy, the grief and the pain, and opening here to a day of quiet presence. The origin of this talk and of this whole next September month of study in our everyday Zen Dharma seminar was a combination of events, beginning with a recommendation from our Eno Tracy to read a particular book about climate Dharma called Wild Mind, Wild Earth by David Hinton. And then that was followed by a series of emails from Ty Cashman and Bruce King and then a few Zoom meetings of a group of our everyday Zen Sangha members wanting to bring more awareness and action about the climate crisis into our Dharma practice. So beginning next Wednesday, Norman will begin teaching from Ehe Dogen's 1240 essay, Keisei San Shoku, which is in English, the sound of the streams, the shapes of the mountains, from the Shobogenzo which, and this is a quote from Taigen Leighton, Dogen celebrates the natural landscape, Sansui, literally mountains and waters. He sees this landscape not only as an inspiration, but also as an active source and agent of awakening teaching. He sees them as the Buddha Dharma. Taigen tells us that Dogen points to this voice of ultimate awareness, the very Buddha in the mountains and the waters, present in the flowing of streams. The form, shape, or colors of the mountains are the body beyond conditioning of a Buddha. The ultimate is not at all separate from the phenomenal world. Not only awakened human sages, but the very mountains and waters pour forth exalted inspiration. Dogen, of course, talks about the Zazen practitioner and says that that practitioner and the awakening of all things are intimately and imperceptibly assisting each other constantly. In this writing, Dogen's exposing a reality in which humans and the natural landscape are not only intimately interrelated, but are actually working in this mutual, supportive assistance of each other, imperceptible, an extraordinary viewpoint. 
Dogen says the world supports us and we support the world when we express together this awakened presence. So knowing that this is what we would be studying for the next month, I also began to wonder how could I maybe deepen my own study. And I began to read this David Hinton book. And then I began to have discussions and give talks about it with the Heart of Compassion Sangha and Point Reyes. And then I also felt that there was something more, and I wasn't quite sure what was it. It felt like I wasn't exactly stepping into how I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be this mutual agreement and assistance and working together, the, the, what we call the natural world and the practitioner. And I realized that I wanted to be creative in that same kind of practice, in a with practice, in a collective realization, in a way of expressing togetherness. And so I read this Ode to Dirt by a poet named Sharon Olds, and this really did it for me. Odes, you might know, are praise songs. Uh, and Olds asks us to pay attention to give honoring to dirt. Dear dirt, she says, I am sorry I slighted you. I thought you were only the background for the leading characters, the plants and animals and human animals. It's as if I had loved only the stars and not the sky which gave them space in which to shine. Subtle, various, sensitive. You, dirt, are the skin of our terrain. You are our democracy. When I understood I had never honored you as a living equal, I was ashamed of myself, as if I had not recognized a character who looked so different from me. But now I can see us all, all made up of the same basic materials, cousins of that first exploding from nothing in our intricate equation together. Oh, dirt, help us find ways to serve your life, you who have brought us forth and fed us and you, who at the end, will take us in. So poets choose to write odes for many things. And this one began to prompt me to write one, too, about the climate crisis. What could I do? Well, I could write an ode. And so I wrote an ode about the Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. And then I asked others at the Heart of Compassion Sangha to write one, too. Some wrote in praise of foods, tomatoes, pink corn. One person wrote about the wonders of water. And then there was an ode someone wrote to dust. And then one about the skyrocketing temperatures recorded on the 4th of July a long ode to birds, a plea for us to pay attention to their vanishing, their horrible rate and number of extinctions. 
Sharon Olds shows us how that we are all cousins of that first exploding from nothing. Perhaps we not only come from the stuff of stars, as we are often hearing, but from the dirt we stand upon. And Olds ends with a plea, a prayer. Help us find ways to serve your life. Honor the dirt, the dirt, the dirt from which we come and who at the end will take us in. Do we really understand what it means to say, I have never honored you as a living equal? This beyond measure, bountiful and beautiful, generous, giving us life soil of living earth. Do we feel that honoring in our body, a pang in our heart for the poet's apology, for our own apology, for dismissing some things that are so vital, so essential. Dear dirt, I am sorry I slighted you. I thought you were only the background for the leading characters. I have certainly forgotten that dirt supports all of life, plants, animals, human, essential to all of us. The poet confesses then to love only the stars, not the sky. Not the sky which gave them space in which to shine. And she'd not considered this before, dazzled as she was by the brightness of stars, forgetting they do not show themselves without the darkness of the night sky. Let's not be so deluded, so distracted by dazzle. Let's not forget the beauty, the richness of the dark. The dark we see as we face into the climate crisis. The sixth major extinction event. As David Hinton says, this time caused not by asteroids or volcanoes, but by us. Us, us. At bottom, Preventing this sixth extinction is a spiritual and philosophical problem, he says, for it is the assumptions of defining us and our relation to Earth that are driving the devastation, the assumptions that insist on a fundamental separation of human and Earth that devalues Earth and enables our exploitative relationship to it. So when Roger Payne saw the suffering, the desecration of that whale, and realized the earth was undergoing an appalling assault, he asked a question beyond the possible to the impossible. What can I do? And then when he actually heard their songs, it completely blew his mind, and he realized, whales, whales, that's what I can do. And here he was saying finally something could get the attention of the world to what was going on. So let's ask ourselves, what can we do? Remembering maybe how the beauty of whales singing interacted with pain's inspired listening, becoming that mutual awakening that Dogen talks about. 
It's so much more than a single person's experience, an awakening that helped launch a worldwide movement focused on ecological protection. It's now known in the canon of law as the legal rights of Mother Nature. But what Payne did, sharing his insightful love for the songs of those whales, brought so much wisdom and compassion together. Together, what David Hinton says is a primordial value, deeper, more ancient, even than self-awareness, togetherness. It inheres in the body itself. We instinctively need togetherness, and togetherness requires kinship. Indeed, this goes so deep that it challenges our assumptions about individual identity. For without kinship and togetherness, what are we? We wouldn't be a sangha. So as happens whenever I write a Dharma talk, stories and quotes from artists and poets and teachers and prophets, ancestors and friends, old uh, headlines from newspapers that I gathered years ago, or even details I hear on the radio from weather reports, they all jump out at me and they want to be in the talk. And they say, please, this is relevant. Don't leave me out. So you'll hear me threading some of these together in this talk. Each one has pointed me, I believe, wisely toward what I'm really trying to say. This one from Robin Kimmerer, a very wonderful Native American author and ethnobotanist from her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Generosity is simultaneously a moral and material imperative, especially among people who live close to the land and know its waves of scarcity and plenty, where the well-being of one is linked to the well-being of all. In a culture of gratitude, everyone knows that gifts will follow the circle of reciprocity and flow back to you again. This time you give, and next time you receive. Both the honor of giving and the humility of receiving are necessary halves of the equation. We dance in a circle, not in a line. Whatever our gift, we are called to give it and to dance for the renewal of the world. What is our gift? What's useful in our everyday Zen and beyond circle of reciprocity? What can we offer to a world that needs giving and receiving and healing? What is our dance? After I typed this, I looked up and I saw three questions that hang over my desk on a yellowing piece of paper from a talk I gave several years ago about Sandra Jishu Holmes, my late Dharma sister and roommate, founder of the Zen Peacemaker Order. The three questions are, what can I deepen at this time? What kindness have I abandoned that I could reconnect with at this time? What part of my soul could I reconnect with at this time? 
These were questions she wrote in her journal, questions she was asking herself as she and her husband, Bernie, were making their retirement pilgrimage to Santa Fe, New Mexico. She was a very, very hard-working bodhisattva, filled with excitement and hope of a new chapter in her life, writing about her need for rest and play and growing a garden. She collapsed with a heart attack five days after they arrived, recovered in the hospital for two days, and then died after suffering a second heart attack. She had lived through some very tough times. She'd been an untended, left-alone child. She had struggled with being a monastic. She had struggled being in public so much. She was ill. She had fatigue. But her journals reveal a Buddha filled with dedication and hope, continuous practice. This quote from Howard Zinn, American historian, bodhisattva, bodhisattva of revisionist American history. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. When we choose to emphasize in this complex history, what we choose to emphasize in this complex complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something useful. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act, in however small a way, we do not have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of present moments. And to live now as we think all beings should be free to live, in defiance of all that's bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. We can act, however small, not having to wait for some grand utopian future. What we choose to emphasize gives us the energy to act and gave Roger Payne and Sandra Jishu Holmes the inspirations to behave magnificently. What are we giving energy to in our lives these days? What kindness could we reconnect with at this time? In a scientific study of the positive physiological and psychological effects on people who practice gratitude actively, one of the things that scientists named that really shifts things for people was establishing a habit of what they called taking in the good. So ponder this. Every time you take in the good, 
you're taking seriously the lifeblood, the raw materials, the dirt of our generative story. You're stepping into this landscape more fully with your imagination and with your presence. You make the generative possibilities of our time more visible, more real. What is good? I believe it's Zazen, our breathing in and out today, all days, all nights, light and dark. Wandering, wondering, without expectation, without evaluating ourselves all the time, without cluttering up our experience with any good-bad dualities. What if we just open to our listening today, just letting things come and go, flowing, enjoying, being, opening, to more generative stories. In a Tricycle magazine article about Meredith Monk, recent Tricycle, she's a Dharma sage, an artist, a musician, a composer. She was in an interview with Sharon Salzberg, who says to her, you compared making art to jumping from the edge of a cliff. And you say that being an artist is learning to tolerate the fear of the unknown. How do you work with this space of not knowing, this mystery, this uncertainty? And Monk answers, I'm terrified every time. My way has always been to try to start from zero, to learn to tolerate the unknown. It is hard every time. But what else can I do? After 60 years of making work, I still feel incredible fear. And then I say to myself, be playful, Meredith. And I just start. Little by little, a clue will come up, a curiosity takes over. The fear is less present. At a certain point, she says, there's this magic birth that just becomes so miraculous. And I'm so grateful to be doing something that affirms mystery and magic in the world. To remember, you can't see everything or hear everything, or label everything, turns out to be a wonderful thing. And near the end of the article, Monk says, I've come to see how Dharma practice is a kind of ground or foundation that underlies every piece of work I work on. In the time I have left on Earth, I want to make art that has a healing aspect to it. That last sentence stopped me. In the time I have left on Earth. I too want to make art that has a healing aspect to it. I too want to make a life that has a healing aspect to it. Do you? Norman says, our brains, our minds, our past experiences and memories, our hearts, our souls, all go into making what we see and hear and taste and touch, smell, feel. We do, in fact, imagine the world. What is the world we are imagining? What is this world of healing? 
this way of staying curious, discovering. He calls it not an escape from reality, but something imagination deepens. It enriches. The truth is that all is creative in enabling us, ultimately, sourcing from our imagination. And then he says, to go beyond the possible is the impossible, and we need to imagine it. So during these last few months of intensifying global climate crisis, huge, fast-moving fires and hurricane winds and floods, dangerous, smoky air, tornadoes, day after day, week after week of temperatures above 100 Fahrenheit for 67 million people in 13 U.S. states and around the world beyond, we may be asking, what can I imagine as a generative story about the climate crisis? What can I or we possibly do about any of this? How can we even imagine something possible from the impossible? I don't know. I don't know. But as Hinton says, something about that we love this world, we feel joy when life thrives, grief when it suffers. And somehow, before intention and choice, before ideas and understanding and everything we think we know about ourselves, we love this world around us. How else could we feel exhilarating awe when a majestic orca or a humpback sings to us or leaps joyfully, a kindred spirit? I'm here. I'm here. Remember me. My friend Francis Weller, a grief therapist, someone who works with people with cancer at Commonwealth, says, we're not meant to live shallow lives, pocked by meaningless routines and the secondary satisfactions of happy hour. We are the inheritors of an amazing lineage, rippling with memories of life, life lived intimately with bison and gazelle, raven and the night sky. We are designed to encounter this life with amazement and wonder, not resignation and endurance. We are the inheritors of an amazing lineage, this beautiful zendo, this beautiful, amazing practice. We're designed to encounter this life with amazement and wonder, and to go, as our teacher says, beyond the possible to the impossible, to imagine our life again. So just reflecting one more time on how Roger Payne's inspiration is hopeful, how his commitment when not many people knew about or cared about the plight of endangered whales of the time became a decision that changed the world. Integrity shines through the decisions we ordinary people make every day. And during this next month of study about climate dharma, we can practice cultivating our capacity for imagining, for imagining what's possible, 
living as if whatever the challenge is, as if whatever it is can happen. Supporting each other together. I've wondered if, as Thich Nhat Hanh predicted, Maitreya, next Buddha, will be the Sangha, then perhaps the climate crisis and this sixth extinction is the next turning of the Dharma wheel. The end of me practice and all awakened togetherness, a great vanishing of selfishness and greed, of supremacy of any kind, violence, hatred, and war. So let's not turn away. Let's be intimate with our world, all of it. We can fall in love with whales. We can restore kindnesses. We can listen to silence and then perhaps hear the only kinds of voices that can emerge from silence, emerge from us. We can make our Dharma study of climate a powerful, life-changing prayer and ode. We can pay special attention to our speech, how our words evoke movement, feelings, meanings, how they can hurt, and how they can heal. How we can actually become the new generative stories. Offering our gifts a circle of reciprocity knowing this time we give and next time we receive. We can dance in a circle, not in a line, for the renewal of the world, challenging our assumptions about individual identity, stepping fully into our kinship and togetherness, each person at the core a Buddha, awakening. It is not too late. Thank you very much. <laughs>